Let us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, to be breathing and have your supplies, your provisions always there for us, your grace always being sufficient to accomplish your will and bring yourself glory in our lives. Help us to embrace these truths, Father, because we know you know best. You have all knowledge. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man, to take away our debt forever and ever, to purchase for us forgiveness at a very high price, but a forgiveness that cannot be changed. We're very grateful, Father. Help us to live in gratitude at this moment and every day of our lives. We ask that you bless this message. Guide us by your spirit. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 51. Well, as you know, we've had a lot of detours in this series also, but it's been a great series. Hope Hope you've been enjoying it, especially seeing the twists and turns that the Spirit takes us on. Turn again in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where on Sunday we saw some important reminders. So we're going to go there one more time today, and personally try to embrace the perspective you see here. Uh, make it personal for you. Your flesh doesn't want to embrace what we're about to read. So personally, try to embrace this perspective. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Paul said, He has said to me, God has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I was reading this before service and it just hit me that basically, you know, in that verse, God is basically saying, I'm going to give you enough, but I'm not going to give you too much because I have to keep you in weakness, at least to some degree, or you will lose it. Without our weaknesses, we know how arrogant we can be. So God has said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Speaking of the thorn in the flesh he was carrying, right? For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you personally believe that? Just something to think about. When I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So we see some beautiful wisdom on the board that the Spirit asked us to synthesize. He called it wisdom on grace. In verse 9, The greater the weakness, the brighter the grace. That's not the way the flesh thinks. 
The flesh is directly opposed to that. I don't want weakness. I can't bear the weakness. I want to feel strong. I want to look strong, etc., etc. But the truth is, the greater the weakness, the brighter God's grace can shine in your life. Verse 10, perspective is everything. Divine perspective is we embrace weakness. So when's the last time you embraced your sickness or embraced your weakness in a certain area as being good for you or for your benefit? And in verse 11, it really helps to remember where we've come from. Without that, we lose humility. And then all bets are off, so to speak. So there's a lot of wisdom on grace in this passage. But the flesh doesn't want to give in to any of the truths right there that you see. The flesh doesn't want to give in to any of that. No. Fight it, tooth and nail. But if we humble ourselves and embrace these principles about ourselves, the truth is going to set us free. But we each have to embrace these truths on the board about ourselves. Accept them freely. On the board, some wisdom on weaknesses. Weaknesses are good because they cause us to turn to the Lord, to rely on Him and His power and grace rather than our own. Is that not divinely good? Isn't it? Isn't it good to be helped in getting out of the way? That's what our weaknesses do. So thanks to God is in order, which is what Paul did in this passage. Thanks to God is in order. Thus we embrace our weaknesses. We were also encouraged this past week that God won't let us quit because His grace never fails. Think about it. If God truly gives a person His grace at salvation, and He does, if God truly gives a person His grace at salvation, how can it not be enough to get the job done? God being perfect. So His grace never fails. He won't even allow us to quit. It's not possible. We have His new nature in us. That's why we must rejoice daily in God's grace. That's why we're being saved daily. It's an experience. So really, on the board, we're living out God's grace. Being born again and becoming a fruit-bearing tree, as in Matthew 7, 18, that's a permanent grace gift. Look at it that way. That's, that's the proper perspective. If you're born again, if you surrender to Christ by grace through faith, you are a fruit-bearing tree. It's just a matter of how much fruit you bear. Probably, you know, based on humility versus arrogance in your daily walk. But either way, that fruit-bearing tree that you've been given, that you've been made into, is a permanent grace gift. And that's what we stand on, what he's done. In Matthew seven eighteen, Jesus said, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And we were graciously reminded by the Spirit that quitting is not the same as stumbling. This was a good clarification that maybe some people needed uh, because we can get down on ourselves pretty easily, if we're honest. Quitting means throwing in the towel completely, which the true believer cannot do due to the Spirit's perfect faithfulness within him. 
He can fail, but not throw in the towel completely. Stumbling means tripping over a rock while you're walking down the right path. There's a big difference between those two things. On the board, we talked about not quitting. Temptation and even faltering for a time is not the same thing as quitting. That's called stumbling, just like Job did quite a bit in his battle of faith. And we've also been pressed by the Spirit. You know, this came up um, some months ago also, but we've been reminded this past week, one of the greatest areas we all stumble in is forgiveness. True, complete forgiveness. Because our flesh loves to hold grudges. Not fully releasing someone from their debt. Maybe 90%, but I can't forget about it. As we've been learning, if we lack forgiveness, we're moving outside the sphere of God's love. Say that three times fast. We're moving outside the sphere of God's love if we lack forgiveness. And that's a a sad situation to be in to our own loss. Um, You know, think about this. When somebody somebody does something wrong against someone, if, if you did something wrong against someone and you apologize to them, you, you got it off your chest, didn't you? Now, if that person refuses to truly forgive you, isn't all the pressure on them, isn't all the weight on them? You apologized. You fessed up, so to speak. You apologized. So them not forgiving you, you know, that's not a burden to you anymore. You already apologized. So it's a, it's a sad situation for the person who's lacking the giving of forgiveness. So we have to keep God's love at the forefront no matter what we do or go through in this life. And keep that in mind because later on that's how the Spirit's going to end, most likely. Um, God's love has to always be at the forefront of everything in this life that we do. God's love is a must-have in the spiritual life because we can't thrive or have joy or have peace without it. Amen? You, You can't. We can't. We can be as stubborn as we want. We can fake it. We can 90% forgive someone. But that 10% is eating away at you. And there's no peace. So go again to Ephesians 4.25. And as we read this passage, Ephesians 4.25, Think about the, the fact that Paul is saying, don't let God's love escape you. Don't let God's love escape you. Don't allow yourself to be caught outside the sphere of his love. Like be, almost like be careful, like a good parent. Be careful. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. Do that. And you'll be happy. You do that, you'll be sad. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that simple, really. But he's talking about God's love and um, not being caught outside the sphere of it to our own detriment, to our own punishment. Look at Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
again, don't be caught or trapped outside the sphere of God's love, or you will give the devil an opportunity. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? For himself? Nope. Love. So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace, i.e. love, to those who hear. Paul is telling us, if you can't see it, how to live in love. And it comes by humbly obeying God's ways in your life. It's not rocket science, folks. It's humility. Are you willing or not? In verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Live in love. Don't be caught outside that sphere. So there we also see in verse 32, forgiveness as an indicator of God's love abiding in us. It's a good indicator. On the board, regarding forgiveness, we saw on Sunday, a forgiving heart is a godly one. It's impossible to fellowship with another person if we persist in unforgiveness. Imagine if God's forgiveness were incomplete. How would we ever fellowship with him for all eternity? How would you have true fellowship with somebody if something's hanging over your head in that relationship? It's not true fellowship, not perfect, not sweet, not pure like you know heaven will be. It wouldn't be heaven. Without forgiveness, could we be confident of God's love for us? Think about that. Without forgiveness, could we be confident of God's love for us? But forgiveness is a proof of God's great love for us, and it's the very basis of our salvation. You mean, God, that you're willing to cast all of my sins behind your back, like once for all? You mean... You're willing to cast all my sins into the depths of the sea so they can't be seen again? God's like, yeah, I'm willing. In fact, I did it. He doesn't hem and haw like us with forgiveness. And that's God's great love for us. That's the proof of God's greatness or the greatness of his love for us. And we know that this is graciously given to every believer fully and freely upon acceptance of Christ as their one and only Redeemer. On the board, we saw Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. No strings attached. So here's a question. If God has forgiven us in such a mighty way, how can we not forgive our brothers who suffer from the same weaknesses of the flesh that we do? 
how do we forget that so quickly? That we have the same type of flesh that the person that offended us has. That we make the same sins against others. Same types of sins. They're all, you know, different, different weaknesses. But how do we so quickly forget that? It's amazing. We become offended when others sin against us while we carry around the same sin nature and we know how brutal it can be to control at times. <laughs> Where's our forgiveness? Where's our compassion? It doesn't make sense, even logically, right? So really, we're all hypocrites. Who are we as fellow sinners to hold on to things? If anyone has a right to hold on to something, it's God, because he's perfect. It's Jesus, because he's perfect. But we have no rights to hold on to anything because of our sin. If we don't forgive, we're falling into hypocrisy. We're saying that we're beyond falling or giving into our own weaknesses. All to our own harm. On the board, to place yourself outside of the sphere of forgiveness is to remove yourself from the sphere of love. For they are one and the same. That's the spiritual reality. And let's not forget that these things are heart issues. As we read on Sunday, several passages, it jumped out to me, you know, so, you know, clearly. These are issues of the heart, and these are issues of humility and surrender before our mighty God and Savior. Really, that's what it comes down to. Uh, go again to Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. So just think about it. Um, our humility and surrender before God is really at the root of forgiveness or the, um, I don't know, impetus, the source. It's really, if you look at the opposite, it's arrogance that doesn't allow us to forgive. But just look at the heart issues here in Colossians 3, verse 12 and on. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Again, it's not rocket science. It's humility. Maybe asking the question, who do I think I am, will help. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, period. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of un unity. We want unity. We want no strife among us. Put on love. It's, it works perfectly. Love never fails. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We know God looks at the heart in everything. And that's where he wants this to take place, so it's not fake 
It's not of the flesh. On the board, the sphere of love. Unity suffers when unforgiveness persists. Peace is fleeting, and we distance ourselves from love, grieving the spirit. There's an intimate connection between forgiveness, love, and even peace. And when we come down to it, these are actually humility and submission issues. If we will surrender to God and the great majesty of His love and forgiveness towards us personally, then it's easy to obey His commands. Again, if we just surrender to God and the great majesty of His love and forgiveness towards us personally, then it's easy to obey His commands. It's easy to not let the sun go down on your anger, for example, or to lay aside falsehood. It's easy. When you have the proper perspective, being totally humble before God and what He's done for you personally. If you lack peace, maybe you're lacking forgiveness in your life, holding on to a grudge like a big fat old yoke around your neck, and you don't even realize you're carrying it around. But that's not a yoke the Lord has given you. Again, who are doubts from, for example? Doubts are not from God. Who are they from? So where's that yoke from? That resentment thing you carry around, that grudge you carry around on your shoulders. So in humility, take it off. Drop it. And abide in the one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We do it to ourselves, don't we? We do it to ourselves. We're miserable because of our own arrogance and pride and self-pity. We can keep going. We do it to ourselves. Here's the truth on the board regarding Matthew 18, 21 through 35, which we read last Tuesday. Satan despises forgiveness. It's one of the reasons why he has rejected God's salvation himself. In the realm of spiritual death, there is no notion of forgiveness. A forgiving heart is a godly heart, something Satan hates. John 8, 44, he's the father of lies. Satan hates forgiveness. One reason why is because it releases someone from their debt. Satan thought he was too good to need releasing from his debt. His arrogance is so great, and he wants us to share in that arrogance. But the love of God sets us free, even from legitimate wrongs. And true love freely and fully releases someone from their debts with no strings attached. And that's why Satan hates it. True love freely and fully releases someone from their debts. Do you remember the Lord's uh, parable we read last week, which, which was on this verse on the board? Let's just pluck out verse 27 on the board. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Remember the slave that owed like millions of dollars and he begged not to be sold? And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. 
on the board, the word released in the Greek is apoluo, to free fully. To free fully. Literally, relieve, release, dismiss, reflexively depart, or figuratively let die, pardon, or especially divorce. To free fully. Do you see the permanent nature in this definition, this whole definition? Do you see the permanent nature of what's done? The implication is that something is over with completely. That's what it means to release. In this case, the debt of the slave. And the Greek word for forgave, let me go back on the board to the verse in verse 27, Matthew 18. The Greek word for forgave, it means to send forth. To send forth. How do you send someone forth and tell them to go forward in their lives if you don't fully release them from the chains holding them back? Can't do it. Imagine having a dog tied to a tree and then throwing the ball and telling him to go fetch. Not very nice, first of all. Monica will kick your butt if that happens. But seriously, big picture. Imagine doing that. It's impossible. The dog is purposely being held back. Is that you? Is that what you do to people? Or do you release them truly so they can be forgiven and sent forth? Pretty cool picture. So this is the full release and freedom of God's forgiveness. And we enjoy it and we should make sure others in our lives enjoy it without reservation. Who the bleep are we to hold back full forgiveness from somebody? I held back there. Did you notice that? I took some time before I said that. But seriously, who do we think we are? And what do you think God thinks of that? Read scripture. You want to see what God thinks of that? There's a verse that says, you don't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. There's a verse that says, I'll hand you over to the torturers. That same passage, actually, Matthew 18. Who do we think we are to not truly, fully forgive somebody and let it go? So you can see the, the evil in that system of thinking. But the true freedom for both parties involved, if we release and forgive. So we must show others the very love of God that we've been shown by grace. What other reasonable alternative is there? Now some of you allow the sun to go down on your anger, as in Ephesians 4. Holding on to anger against someone is also a form of unforgiveness, if you think about it. So let it go. Cast it away from you. Just like you do with doubts. Cast it away from you right away. Both are a trap and a snare to our souls from the liar himself. So remember what we talked about last week. Call them out. Call them out as the lies they are. Satan wants you to stay angry. Stay, Satan wants you to stay in doubt. 
That's why by the, by the time the sun goes down, you better cast those things off or they're going to grow roots. And they're going to become that virus. You know, when you touch the virus too long, you, you actually get it. It's going to become that in your system, in your blood, so to speak. Call them out. Someone may have legitimately hurt you, but you hurt the Lord way worse than that. And he forgave you fully. Amen? So anything we're holding back with forgiveness, we need to wake up before the Lord has to wake us up, honestly. What we also discussed on Sunday is that the evil in men's hearts likes to hold things over the head of others. But we believers are not to be like those in the world that do that, giving into the flesh, basically, and its ways. So we saw on Sunday, why do people do this? Maybe to try to keep control over others, even unfairly if you think about it. Uh, unfair because considering their own sins, they'd realize they have no right to do that, but most people don't stop to consider their own sins. So we call this foolish hearts on the board. Human beings are so deceived that they actually believe that holding a grudge is somehow holding another person in their grip. But that's a lie. We must take the high road, as Christ did all the time. Pray for that person's unforgiving heart. Pray that the veil be lifted off their eyes. We're back to the sphere of love and the peace and victory we can experience if we live in it. And there's no other way to true peace. There's no other way. On the board, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So if you need to tonight, change your perspective. You know, I haven't really been covering all the transgressions of even those that have sinned against me personally. I haven't been covering them so no one else sees them, protecting them out of God's love like he did for me. Think all the, God, the things that God covered for you that so no one else would see by grace. That's what a believer should be doing. We're to be uh, sin coverers. Operating God's love that covers all transgressions. That's exactly what he did for us. But lack of forgiveness has a way of eating away at us, doesn't it? You know what I mean. I mean, you, you probably everyone should know what I mean. Because even at times in our lives when we thought we forgave someone and we realized we didn't, maybe even years later. As we heard on Sunday, this is a type of strife. You might say, uh, for example, I didn't cause the sin. They did. They sinned against me. But you're the one responsible for letting it live on. Whether you like it or not, the ball's in your court. So you might be the innocent party who got offended and sinned against. But now, whether you like it or not, especially if someone's apologized to you, the ball is in your court. Are you going to hold on to that thing? If you do, it's strife. 
you're causing strife with your brother. You're not letting it go like Christ let yours go. You're holding on to a grudge when God says we have no right to do so. And if you persist in that, you might as well put handcuffs on your feet and your hands. Might as well. On the board, 2 Peter 2.19, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Anything that you allow to overcome you, to take control of you, to um, bother you in this case, like someone's sin against you, you're going to be the slave. You suffer, you remain in bondage. So the Spirit gave this to us on Sunday as well, slaves to evil. When's the last time you met a person who's simultaneously stirring up strife, and this includes holding back forgiveness? Even if you're the innocent party in that situation. When's the last time you met a person who's simultaneously stirring up strife and is themselves content and peaceful? It really doesn't exist. So another perspective that came out on Sunday on the board, to cling to unforgiveness is to actually doubt the grace of God. Something pastor asked us to think about. To cling to unforgiveness is to doubt the grace of God. As Pastor shared, if the Word of God says that if you forgive, you are blessed by grace through faith, then to doubt that is to doubt the grace of God itself. And that's exactly what your enemies want you to do. They want you to doubt the fullness of God's love. So we've been instructed what to do with these doubts, any doubts. They're not from God. So if you're entertaining doubts, cast them off immediately. Shake them off like a giant bug that grabs your arm. What are you going to do? You're going to shake it off as quick as you can, right? I mean, that's how our reaction should be to doubts. Don't let them linger, fester. Don't start petting them, you know. Be a good boy and all that. You're not that bad of an ugly bug. Don't. Allow yourself to go there. Don't allow yourself to entertain it. Have that, um, that vile reaction, that urgent reaction towards doubts. Cast them off immediately. Wash your hands of it, for doubts are like a virus. The longer we play with a virus, the more likely we are to become infected by it. And again, on the board, doubts are not from God. So who are they from? There's a spiritual war going on. Turn again to Ephesians 6.10. There's a real spiritual war going on. There's fiery darts that are being thrown at your soul. And Satan's not stupid. He knows the areas to attack. He knows the areas to, you know, he knows exactly where to fire them at you. The weak sides, like the, the flank, instead of straight on, whatever. There's a spiritual war going on, folks. And Satan doesn't want you to be equipped to represent the gospel properly. See, if he can get us sidetracked as believers, we don't live in the Great Commission. If he can get us sidetracked and distracted and even preoccupied with self and preoccupied with doubts and anger and things like that, great, we're like useless in the Great Commission. 
we, we, we've been taken out of, you know, off the enemy lines, or we're in the sick bay or something. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You, if you don't cast off doubts right away, you're not putting on the full armor of God. You're leaving that on, those doubts on, as a, like a counterfeit armor. The schemes of the devil are many, and he's a snake. And snakes are sneaky. They come at you quietly. They come at you from all directions. So don't underestimate the way Satan and the kingdom of darkness can attack you. Don't, under, don't get like uh, complacent like you, like you think you know his ways. You know, you know all of his tricks. Oh, you're so mature, right? In other words, stay humble towards his wiles. We never arrive. We never have that genius figured out. But embrace the fact that the Lord is always with you and defending you, and he's in you. Rely on him to make you aware of the schemes of the devil. So the wonderful news that came out on Sunday is that we have an intercessor in heaven, someone actually stepping in in our behalf in the very throne room of God. Turn again to uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, And it really was, you may have you know, known this principle, but it was fun to revisit on Sunday. I mean, just picture right now in your head, Jesus Christ in heaven, constantly praying for you constantly praying for you that's the activity that's going on right now Luke twenty two thirty one. Jesus said to Peter Simon Simon behold Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you when once you have turned again strengthen your brothers on the board, that your faith may not fail. The emphasis should not be placed on the potentiality of failure, but rather the effectiveness of the Lord's prayer. But I have prayed for you. Peter's imperfect faith did fail at times, but it was never fully eclipsed. He always turned again. He didn't quit. He stumbled. Pretty ugly stumble, but it was a stumble. It wasn't quitting. And the Lord's Prayer was effective. So think about this. The Lord has been boldly representing you or standing up for you from day one. He even knew you were going to become a believer, right? He even knew that you were predestined from eternity past to be His. So from day one, even before you were born, Christ was defending you. He even had us in mind at the cross. And he continues to stand up for us every day in the throne room, throne room, room of heaven. Blah, blah, blah. And while Satan's there too, right? In heaven, accusing the brethren day and night, the scriptures say. Jesus is right there. He's like, I'm their attorney. Don't talk to them. Talk to me. Isn't that great when attorneys do that? Like, don't talk to them. You know, they're not going to say anything. And 
how much more confident can you get than having Jesus Christ as your attorney? So he continues to stand up for us because of his unquenchable love. Again, back to God's love. It's a fierce love. It's unquenchable. On the board, Jesus' role in salvation. In John 18, 9b, Jesus said, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That means he's keeping you. He's doing something to keep you. He lost not one. He didn't allow you to be lost. So there you see the activity of the Lord's role in our lives, even our daily lives. Throughout Scripture, Jesus is depicted as having a very active role in our salvation, both in the gospel call, my sheep hear my voice in John 10, 27, and daily. I ask on their behalf, Father, in John 17. Isn't it relaxing and comforting to know that Jesus was and is so aggressive on our behalf? Like a shepherd actually attacking an oncoming wolf who's threatening his sheep. The Lord's heart is that kind of aggressive and persistent on our behalf. And he doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow weak. And his constant praying for us is just another form of his persisting grace towards us. And what's grace? It's love in action. Grace is an expression of love. So again, his constant praying for us at the throne room is another form of his persisting grace towards us, his unending love. And as the Spirit's been pointing out, our enemies hate grace. They despise grace, and they'll try to pervert it so they can discredit God's love. That's the, like the center of the attack. That's the main objective of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. Attack God's love. Discredit God's love. They even suggest there are things or strings attached to God's love, which is one of the biggest lies. We saw on Sunday also that our three enemies are all very selfish lovers. So think of our three enemies for a minute. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In each case, it's all about them. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In each case, it's all about them. Very selfish lovers. And by tempting you to question God's love and enticing you to doubt God's grace towards you as a believer, then they can lord it over you with their selfish love. They try to control you. Remember that from earlier in the lesson? Controlling someone by holding something over them well, our enemies will try to control us by lying to us about God. Remember, again, Satan's the father of lies. He makes his very living at slandering the name of God, especially his love. So remember where these thoughts come from. Where do these doubts come from? Directly from the kingdom of darkness is not a bad guess. Your flesh is chiming in. Right? The world system is chiming in, chirping, chirping away at you through TV and media and different things. 
But the kingdom of darkness is bringing these thoughts on that challenge or question God's love. But God, so this is why we gather together like this, right? To regroup, to re-strengthen from battle in the devil's world today. God wants you to hold on to his love like an anchor. He's like, I got you. My anchor is the strongest anchor that you know, ever existed. There's no, nothing's going to pull my anchor out of the bottom of the ocean floor. You're stabilized in my love. That's why we come back here to regroup like this so we can go back out again tomorrow and go at it. Walk by faith with the Spirit. We'll be beaten up sometimes, weary. Come back and get washed over by the Word. We need this so desperately for these kind of reminders. God wants us to hold on to His love like an anchor. To realize and, and be refreshed from the doubts that were cast at you today. Only God can be an anchor, by the way, that's perfect in strength and stability. And the anchor is His love. And He is love. So know it and love Him for it. So on Sunday, as we begin to close, we saw reminders from the Apostle John and being on guard for pseudo-love from the world versus having the pure, perfect love of God that we operate in that can't fail us. So turn again to 1 John 2.15. <clears throat> I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get this all in for you. I think I am. 1 John 2.15. There's the world's love, and then there's God's love. First John 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see how they're mutually exclusive? Which love are you operating in? It's not, you can't have both. Or you can't be functioning in both at the same time. Look at 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. It's foreign to the world, in other words, God's love. And turn again to John the Gospel of John, fifteen nineteen. John fifteen nineteen. Remember how Jesus said, "You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. Like it's impossible. You can't do both. Which one are you serving, or which one are you loving, or which love are you operating in?" John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Hates you because it hates the love of God. The world is going to try to suck you in, even with things like flattery. We heard that on Sunday. The world is going to try to convince you that its way is better, or at least easier. Because there's no call for integrity. There's no call for loyalty in the world's love, for example. 
If we buy that lie, if we fall or give in to pseudo-love or the world's love, we will be a casualty in the spiritual war and will be miserable and unstable. The very opposite of what God has planned for us. He's planned for us to do this, to gather together in unity, to forgive each other with the perfect bond of love in unity, and then to bring this thing out there and show people the light. That's what God's designed for us, to have His love and therefore His peace and His stability and His happiness in us, in ourselves, planted, growing good fruit, so we can go out there and do battle. And the more we rely on Him, the less weary, weary we'll be. We won't even be weary. When you're really relying on the Spirit, when you're really walking by faith, you don't even get tired. It doesn't matter what they do to you. So again, it's us getting in the way. If we find ourselves pretty weakened and weary, we, you know, we're getting fleshly somehow. But God's love is unstoppable. It never fails. So let's close with this idea tonight on the board. God's love must never be absent from any part of our lives. God's love must never be absent from any part of our lives. This is what came to my soul after Sunday's lesson, as I was thinking about it afterwards. God's love must never be absent from any part of our lives. In other words, we mustn't allow for that. We mustn't lose sight of the vital nature of God's love. Vital. It is or should be at the very core of everything we do and experience, no matter what it is. Think of the life of Jesus. Was he ever absent the love of God? <laughs> Silly statement, right? But think of all the things he went through. Think of all the things he did. Think of all the confrontations he had. Think of all the accusations he received. Was he ever absent the love of God? So on the board, a little wisdom on love. We know in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. And realize that we can't, we can't afford to not stay in the sphere of love. In all things that we do or see or experience or receive from the world, we can't afford to step out of that sphere. Again, on the board, love never fails, and let all that you do be done in love. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, as we read this, I know you know this passage, but don't be familiar with it. As we read this, Realize that all these things in this passage must be done in love. If not, you're missing like the very heart of God in your activity. You're missing the very heart of Christ, Jesus himself, in your activity. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, forgiveness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But do you see how all these good things mentioned in this passage are worthless without love in God's eyes? Big goose egg. You're nothing. Nothing without love. And there, was this, there were some stupendous acts of faith in that passage that the Lord was telling the apostles to do and the apostles did. Counts for nothing in God's eyes without love. Why? Because you dropped the very heart of God from your activity. You said, I don't, I don't need to live in Jesus' love. I'm just going to obey, but I'm going to obey out of a stubborn, resentful heart because I have to, like a kid, right? God's after the heart. So that's how vital God's love is to life itself. Without God's love, there's no true life, no matter how we try to fake it or force certain things in our lives, even good things. Without God's love, there's no true life. So let's close by going to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. So just think about what we just said, what the Spirit just brought up. How vital God's love is to life itself. And as we read this passage, I'm going to ask you to think out of the box. Okay? Think out of the box. Step back and think big picture. Ecclesiastes 3.1 There's an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now don't look at this with a one-to-one -one correlation. Some of you are saying, see, there's a time to love and a time to hate. I don't have to always have love. And you're missing the big picture. Here's a question I want to ask you. With all these things that we go through in life, there's a time for everything. Does God's love ever leave him? We know the answer is no. God is love, right? Is God ever not love? So if that's not the case, right, God's always love. 
So we mustn't let his love leave us regardless of what we're called to do or go through. Even in that very thorough list there in Ecclesiastes 3, we mustn't let God's leave us regardless of what we're called to go through or experience or do. For example, is God not love when it's time for him to judge? Is God ever not love, even when it's time for him to judge, even eternally? Of course not. Does he cease to be love when it's time to do difficult things his integrity is called to do? He just always is love. He's always in the sphere of love. He has to do the right thing by his own, you know, nature, his own integrity, but he never loses his love. And so we mustn't leave the sphere of love ever. No matter what we're called to do, just that, like there's a time for everything in this life. But whatever it is on that list, it never excludes God's love and you staying in the sphere of it. We can't afford to step out of the sphere of God's love because it's a miserable road. And it brings no glory to God, as we just saw. So take this analogy with you as we close. Let's not ever be caught with our spiritual pants down, caught outside the sphere of God's love. I know it's not perfect. It's not a great analogy. But seriously, just think about it. Don't ever be caught with your spiritual pants down, caught outside the sphere of of God's love. You know? You're in a situation, someone catches you, whatever, and you're like, oh, I dropped his love. God, that was stupid. Now I see it. Why did I do that? Don't be caught in that situation. In other words, guard God's love being active in you at all times. You know, protect that thing by faith, by grace through faith. It takes a lot of prayer, right? It takes being aware and being alert of your adversary and the schemes of the devil. He's trying to take that away from you. He's trying to pluck you out of the sphere of love so you operate over here, even doing good things, that in God's book counts as zero. Without love, we have nothing. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word and your amazing grace toward us. And we thank you for the guidance of your spirit. We ask, Father, that you help us be humble before you at all times and to enjoy the sphere of love that you have placed us in, this bubble of protection that you provide for us, always actively keeping us. And we ask, Father, that you help us to submit and surrender and just enjoy where you want us to live and walk. Father, most of all, help us Take these things out to a lost and dying world that needs your word and your truth so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your spirit, we pray.